On this episode of the Post House Podcast, we talk with our editor and producer, a world-traveling documentary filmmaker, an onion aficionado, and our weirdo, but in a good way, Kirk Mason. All right, welcome to another exciting episode of the Post House Podcast. We're here with Kirk. Kirk, how are you doing, buddy? Pretty good. How's the coffee? Nice and Co- hot? Coffee's good. Any whiskey in that coffee? No. Not yet? Mm-mm. Not yet. Too early for that. So, Kirk, you joined us this uh, officially this year, uh, but you joined us last year. You said March 5th is your official uh, I think that's what it was. Yep. March 5th. So we put out a, we put out a little posting looking for an uh, uh, editor. Um you came along. We we inter- had an interview process. You you spent a year as a contractor with us. Um, you're from Michigan, mm-hmm. so uh, h- how's that treating you? People are pretty nice here. There, yeah. there have been a couple instances where people have been a little bit hostile because I'm from Michigan, but it's not that bad. But you're from Michigan State. You're not from like Michigan. Yeah, right. right. It's the state of Michigan, and you went to Michigan State. So you came from Michigan State. Uh, yeah, we knew that you were a very talented uh, shooter uh, and editor and storyteller. That's why you, uh, we brought you on. So uh, tell me a little bit about like your background. Like what got you into video? Um, well, I started, I guess, getting serious about it in college. Uh, I started off in college starting, studying music, but I didn't like it very much. Um, still a musician, but doing it in school, it wasn't really for me. And I thought that making videos or making movies might be kind of fun. Um, so I just joined the, the program there and uh, met some really cool people. And I uh, found out pretty quickly that I didn't really like fiction filmmaking. Right. I didn't really fit in with that crowd of people. I mean, stories come in all, all different, you know, ways. I mean, you, you're a, a fan of documentaries, right? Uh, yeah. So after a while in, in the, in the video and filmmaking program at Michigan state, I, I, I learned that I really liked stories that already existed okay. because I, I, maybe I didn't have to work as hard or <laughs> I just, I liked that they were real and I could connect with people. That's the main thing. Um, I really liked just connecting with people and talking about that. And then if I could find a way to represent that in some artistic way, that's what I like doing. So the the relationship with people like one of the big things that uh that we all believe here at like post house is like the the power of 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 a relationship uh so tell me a little about the fulfillment side that you get from the relationship building when you're doing those you know documentary and you know stories so um i think i always try to remember it's a lot easier to to do this when you just think this constantly but everybody in the world knows something that you don't uh, or has some bit of information or life experience that you will never have. Um, That's a humbling thing to think when you're trying to talk with somebody. Um, I think a lot of people just want to come into a relationship saying, this is, this is what is, this is what I have to offer. This is what I'm going to give you. This is what I'm, you know, this is what I'm worth. But if you, if you look at it from the perspective of, this is an, an, a new person that I've never met um, or even someone that you have met, but they have a piece of information that I can gather from them. Uh, I think things would be a lot different and be more listening, more empathy. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, there's the old saying that you have, you have two, year, two ears and one mouth, right? You know, so you're supposed to listen more than you talk. Hmm. And I mean, it's really kind of weird on a, on a podcast to say that, but it's true. I mean, you know, one of the things that, you know, we we really do, and I know you do it, like when you're on, you know, client facing is like you really listen to the client and what they want. Mm-hmm. And you really listen to the part of the story that maybe everybody everybody doesn't know. So like, you know, you're always looking for that little bit of nugget, like, because anybody can walk into a room and say, okay, well, we're here we are in this room. But I think as a visual storyteller, you know, you're trying to connect with the audience of something that they don't see or hear in the room, right? So that kind of goes along with like the stories, like, you know, everything visually is skin deep, but like when you really dive into the personality or the relationship that you are trying to extract from that, that person that you're interviewing, you know, I think it really does touch home with your, your thoughts that they have something that you will never have. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. an experience and that's that, or a relationship with someone else. So kind of elaborate a little bit more on like what drives you about that? What makes that so fulfilling? I don't know. I guess connecting with people is really important to me. I like to, um, I don't know why. I, I guess I don't really have a good answer for that. I just like to, I just like to listen to what other people have to say, and that lends itself to being a good storyteller because you can hear so much more and you can project it. So how how do you feel like in like the in, keeping the integrity of like people's stories? Like I mean, obviously that you know you're a shooter and you're an editor, and you have to like take some sort of creative liberties of sectioning out pe- you know little mm-hmm. pieces of um, the story to kind of help drive the story. Tell me like in that thought process, like do you ever feel like that you're there's never just enough time to tell everything, or do you like the editorial part? Um, editing is definitely a part of the process with the most amount of power. Um, I guess I'll answer that question differently. There's, I went through a time when I was learning about documentary filmmaking, when I thought that it would be really important to be as objective as possible and to try and be like, you know, completely objective, but obviously that's not very possible. (laughs) Uh, but I thought that it, it might be. Um, I had lunch with a, a documentary filmmaker. Uh, he made this documentary, I forget what it's called, The Waiting Room. It's about like a few families who are in a hospital waiting room waiting for their loved ones in the ER. Um, and I asked him about that. I asked him about objectivity and how important that is. Um, because at the time, I was working on a documentary about organ trafficking and uh, it was really eating me up. I mean, it's a really serious topic, and you want to talk. It's it was based on some research that this guy was doing, like anthropology research, um, that a professor at Michigan State was doing, and he wants to be objective because he wants to because it's science, and science is all about objectivity. And uh, so, in making a documentary about that, I wanted to follow his research. But I came to a point where I was just so emotionally invested in the documentary that I, it was hard for me to be like, uh, you know, everyone is doing something illegal, illegal even the victims. Um, it was hard for me to accept that this is just like the way it is and I just have to show that. 
Um, so I was asking the filmmaker about how I could approach that situation. And um, he said it's not actually really that important to be objective because uh, all art is just telling your perspective, um, whether that's somebody else's or your own or a combination of both, which I think it is. Uh, so I guess... What was your original question? I'm, I got, no, no, just uh, I'm coming yeah, back to it. I'm like seventy five percent there. No, just there. how you know you have that power to edit that story to right. you know to fit the narrative that you want to tell mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of that you know a lot of the meat is there, right? You know, mm-hmm. so like the the raw story is there, but maybe they didn't say it just right. Maybe they alluded to it, but maybe they picked up the sentence later, mm-hmm. right. and then you like had that power to put that thought together to make the thought that you want to portray mm-hmm. and it's 90% theirs, but 10% yours. Yeah. And, you know, the, there are fun. times when you can add a little bit more of your own, as an editor, your own um, voice into it, so to speak. Um, I think that's important to do sometimes, but uh, I don't know. It's always about finding that balance of what you think that they, what, what, what you think they want to portray. That goes back to the whole connecting thing. Like if you connect with them, you have a better idea of what, where they're coming from. And that's really important. Um, so trying to figure out how much of their message and their ideas you want to portray to the world and how much you want to influence it. Right. So, um, you know, going back to some of these relationships, right? So, uh, what, what is, you know, you know, obviously personal fulfillment is a big thing that we want to make sure that everyone finds here at Post House. Uh, so how do those relationships help personally fulfill you? Or is it, does it the work that is personally fulfilling? Is it the creative part? Like how does, how does that all make Kirk, you know, fulfilled? One of my favorite parts about making videos, uh, is that you get to be involved with so many different people who do so many different things. And, uh, you just get to learn about new stuff all the time. I just kind of, uh, peripherally involved with so many projects. And I mean, uh, a while back I worked, I made some videos for a guy who does uh, like rainwater harvesting and plumbing and and water system management. And so I learned all about different types of jet pumps and uh, connectors and things for different piping and plumbing things. And I just have no idea about that, but now I see it around and like, if there's an exposed ceiling, I can see some of the plumbing in the ceiling or, you know, electrical wiring and stuff. And I, I can appreciate that more. That that's the same with everything. Like I'm trying to think of an example from post house, but I didn't know what Ronald McDonald house was before I worked on the, (laughs) on the video for it. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of the, the, the genesis of that was so many people know you've heard of Ronald McDonald house, but you didn't, maybe not, you didn't know what it actually did. Like, you know, it was just like a charity that, you know, you put your change in at the, at the drive through. Right. Mm-hmm. But you found out through a project that we did that, you know, it's a lot more. It's really about keeping families close. So when there's a sick family member at the hospital or, you know, they provide housing for those families who have to travel long distance. Mm-hmm. Um, you get to work on that project. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little about like uh, your experience making some content for, uh, the wrong McDonald house. Uh, I mean, it's a beautiful story. I, I liked, I like working on it because it was emotional. It was kind of sad. 
I love emotional sad things. Uh, <laughs> so I liked it. I like having that ability to affect people's emotions. I think that that video was a good tool for me to do that. Uh, so some other little cool things that you, you, you know, you, you are, you know, you've done a lot of document, uh, you're a documentary filmmaker. So, uh, that lends a lot to some travel, right? So tell me a little bit about your, your, your traveling days with a camera on your back. Yeah, I like traveling. Um, I think I'll just tell you about a time that was really transformative for me because that's kind of where my current life spawned from. Before that, I was a little bit, I was much different, a little bit cockier, <laughs> a little bit of a jerk, I think. Um, but as people grow, they change. And this was a very changing time. I was hired by Michigan State to shoot this report for the for the university and it was two months um, I would say on the road but it was in the sky it was I went to seven six countries and made about five to ten minute documentaries in each country that was and they were based on research that was happening um, from Michigan State so that's kind of like uh, where I learned a lot of my um, what what I think about the world, I guess that was kind of where it all shaped. Um, you know, met a lot of people, learned a lot of stuff, and since then I've just tried to travel as much as I can and get jobs that take me to other places because it's really important for me to learn from other people and meet new people. Obviously, it was transformative for you, mm -hmm. and uh, in a relationship sense. So tell me a little bit about the the relationships that spawned from from these travels. When you work in video production, and I think especially in documentary filmmaking, you get to work a lot of the time with people who who dedicate their life to a very specific thing. Um, video can be a marketing tool; it can be a way to amplify some voice. And when you specifically make videos, um, you have a, a service that people who don't have the the way to amplify their voice uh, can use to do that. And so people who work in a, in a specific field or, or craft for their entire life, they can be stronger um, and, and bolster their message uh, through video. And... That is what I mean when I say you get to peripherally work with uh, people who, who do all these cool things. Like, for instance, worked with a man who's been working in the same region of Rwanda for 30, 40 years or something like that, making or like helping to grow uh, bean varieties that are drought, drought tolerant, drought resistant, um, and more nutritious. And to me, that guy's like, a rock star. He's a celebrity because he has dedicated his whole life to to doing that. That's crazy. I, I, I that just seems like so much effort. Um, so I like involving myself with those people. Uh, so those are some of the relationships I like to to pursue because I just feel like I'm you know starstruck with with those scientists and other uh, researchers who do that kind of thing. All right, so a couple more little things about you. Uh, you know, if anyone walks by your office, you'll see it's uh, the greenest 
office in the, in the building. Mm-hmm. You, you got a you got a big thing for plants, right? I mean, you you, you know you idolize these rock star uh, bean planters. Tell me a little about your room, man. Like your room is like full of like plants. It's like a, it, it, what they call the the planetarium and it not planetarium the like conservatory. Eight, the conservatory. That's what it is. Um, yeah, man. Tell me about your about your plants. Uh, up until about two years ago, I would kill every plant and <laughs> um, animal and pet that I had, and then I started dating. Sarah, my partner, and she has a green thumb. And I don't know what happened, but watching her take care of stuff and take care of animals and plants and everything, it shifted something. I don't feel like I'm doing anything different, but plants just stay alive now, which is nice. Uh, I do have a lot of plants. I think there's like 15 in there. There's a bunch. I I counted. I always walk by, you're always spraying them, picking at them, like uh, transplanting, literally, some of them they have. It wow, makes me feel good to take care of them, I guess. I, um, I mean, it really does. Uh, it brightens up the office. I mean, it's really nice. Uh, yeah. You also have like a thing for like bees and snakes, right? So tell me. Yeah, well, I have a ball python. His name is Elbow. Uh, what, what, where does that name come from? Elbow. Uh, I guess elbows are, they just, there's just one joint and he's like 100 million joints. So I thought it was funny. I mean, I like every now and then, we'll like, I'll, I'll scroll through your Instagram or whatever, and there'll be like a snake coming out of your shirt. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and then you tell me, talk about their feeding habits and yeah. like, what, what's going on with the snake? Uh, he's actually a little bit finicky. He, he spent about six months not eating, <laughs> and I, we didn't know what to do. Um, we actually were about to take him to a, there's a, rep, there's a reptile person in town who's pretty well-respected within the reptile community. Um, good resource in Columbus. And we were going to give it to him to just take care of because we he wasn't eating for us, but he ended up eating, so it was fine. Was it something like he wanted his food alive or like what's the deal? Uh, he did eat a bunch of live rats, but then he stopped eating live rats. And we found out that he actually just wants frozen thawed rats. So now he eats those. Where, do you get, where, where does one get frozen thawed rats? PetSmart. PetSmart? Yeah. Is it PetSmart? Or pets smart. So when you look at the logo, P E T S is all one color, and M A R T S is the other color. I think that's what it is. It's it's separated by color, so you can figure it out. Okay. I don't remember what it is. But from Michigan, I mean, like they they say it one way or the other. Or is it pet smart or pet smart? We we just hunt our own food up there. I gotcha. I gotcha. So tell me a little bit more about some uh, some of these creative things you get to do. Um, uh, you got a, you got a passion for onions. You want to do an onion documentary? Like, tell me a little bit. Like, what's going on with these onions? Also, I mean, you got snakes, bees, onions, plants. Like, you travel. Mm-hmm. Interesting guy. Yeah, onions. On, onions are cool. They uh, that actually was one one thing I kind of thought about or, or noticed when I was traveling, and when I still travel. Uh, I guess I kind of came to this realization that everybody. Uh, everybody eats onions. Everybody grows onions. Everybody. For Scott. Scott doesn't like. Well, that. yeah, but um, they're grown all over the world. The Allium genus is everywhere. Uh, it's a worldwide plant. We've been cultivating it for thousands of years, and it's just kind of grown up alongside us as we've evolved and uh, matured with society and everything. We've always had onions, and uh, I guess I just kind of realized one day as I was sifting through some B-roll for for a uh, reel that I was making for myself, like uh, footage from Bangladesh, footage from India, 
footage from Tanzania, footage from China. Everybody has onions. And I thought that it would be fun to to tell the story of onions uh, in some interesting way. So I started to think more about it and research more about it. And I looked up the National Onion Association and I looked up some authors who made books about onions and looked up onion researchers and started to really get into it and um, learned all about onion pests, onion management, onion growing, onion festivals around the world, like local onions, local onion festivals. Um, There's a big research center in India that I want to go to. They research onion and garlic because they're cousins. (laughs) Um, I got, so my partner, Sarah, her dad grew up in one of the leading producing areas for onions in the country in Western New York. And as a kid, everybody, everybody in that area as a kid, like they, they go out and they pick weeds out of the muck because onions grow in mucky soil. Uh, So everyone works in the muck when they're kids. And uh, I asked if he knew any onion farmers up there and he said, oh yeah, of course I, I can get you in contact with one. And I, I went up there and I interviewed the guy and I spent a lot of time with him up there. He even let me drive the, the tractor that harvests the onions. It was kind of fun. But I think the point of it is not to talk about onions specifically, but to use onions as kind of a storytelling tool to uh, talk about different stories of different cultures and different people. I think there's a lot there. And even talking with the, I have the person that I talked with at the National Onion Association, we had this long conversation about it. She's really excited about it too, because of course she loves onions. Um, But she was telling me all these different leads for stories I could have. Like there's this archaeologist who is digging up old, like a Native American, the way that they would cook food is they would have pits and then put food in there with coals and, or I don't really know how they did it, but they were, they're kind of these pits and he's excavating these pits uh, and finding remains of different plants and stuff. And he found onions. So, you know, that was hundreds of years ago. Also in the forties when, or around world war two, when, Japanese Americans were put, there was a lot of discrimination against them there in internment camps. A lot of Japanese Americans moved to the Pacific Northwest uh, where they started onion farms. Um, and so there's, you know, there's all these stories that are associated with onions that I think are, are really interesting. And the more that I think about it, the more I research about it, the more I find. Uh, I just really like onions. And also it's, it's um, encouraged me to learn how to cook the perfect onion. So I, I've been trying, but it's hard. Okay. So some connective things here, some rapid fire, right? What's your favorite? Uh, we've been around the world. Which, where's your favorite place to get a cup of coffee? Starbucks. Starbucks? No. <laughs> Just I don't know. That's a good question. What's your favorite coffee bean from? I mean, okay, how about like a dark roast, a light roast? Uh... I like uh, I like an East African coffee. I okay. like the acidity. Okay. But, uh, well, never mind. That's no, go, go on. Yeah. I, so, this is just a long story. I don't know. That's fine. No, okay. it's cool. I mean, like, I do know that like it's you and Tony, you kind of always, and, and John, like there, there, there's like a, a coffee culture here and you guys are always doing different kind of pours and going to different kind of coffee shops, trying different beans. John goes to different places, gets beans. I see Tony's Amazon box come from all over and he's got all kinds of different presses and mm-hmm. things. What's the, what's the good, how do you make the perfect cup of coffee? You know how to do the perfect onion. Let's, let's talk about <laughs> the cup of coffee. 
Well, like onions, coffee has a long and rich history with humans. Uh, it's easy to appreciate because of the benefits of drinking coffee. Uh, I think a lot of people really love it. I mean, historians would say that we wouldn't be the same people that we are today without coffee. And that goes for a lot of things. But um, I guess I don't know how to make the perfect cup of coffee. I don't really care that much. I just like to drink it. I don't put all the effort into it. Maybe I will someday, but right now I don't care. Uh, I know the fastest way to make it with the Chemex. Push the button. Yeah, I guess <laughs> not the fastest way. But um, I was going to say that a couple of years ago, I was part of a project called Nicabeja Proyecto, or the Nicaragua Bee Project. Okay. So we went to Nicaragua and worked with, it was a group of American and one Canadian beekeepers. Uh, I'm not a beekeeper, but I just tagged along and took photos. And we went to Nicaragua and worked with Nicaraguan beekeepers who were kind of new and, and didn't you know have a lot of experience with it yet. So it's kind of like a farmer-to-farmer farmer program, gotcha. um, exchange program. The Nicaraguan beekeepers would teach the American and Canadian beekeepers how to keep Africanized bees or killer bees. It's much different management style. And the Nicaraguan beekeepers would learn best practices um, from up north and just learn from each other. But anyway, um, one of the things, one of the main things that bees pollinate is coffee. So we got to go to, to a lot of different apiaries and uh, like hive yards where bees are and that means that we got to go to a lot of coffee plantations and different farms, pineapple, dragon fruit, all these different places, but got to hang out with coffee a lot. And as a result, got to drink a lot of coffee while I was down there with honey in it. It's really nice. So if you got to pick a, an onion, what's your favorite onion? Mm. Oh, I don't know. Just, like, a, just like picking a favorite. Just a yellow or? onion, I guess. Yellow onion. Okay. I just the one I use the most. Okay. So, uh, best way to prepare it then? What do you think? Well, according to... I'm not according Jan, to you. According to you. Okay. What's the best way to prepare The way it? that I've learned was from the Onion Book by Jan Roberts Dominguez. Oh, Tony will totally put a link somewhere on there. <laughs> book. Well, he was on it. Well, she says that the number one ingredient for onions is time. And... Like, that's, that's true. Like the longer you cook it, yeah. Oh, okay, not like not T not, not, T H Y M E. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the longer you cook it, slow, slow cooking, low heat, the better, the more tender, uh, the sweeter, tastier it gets. And I think that's true. I usually cook them with um, butter, and then add salt to kind of break it down, and let it cook slow. But I do like also if I have a like a charcoal grill, I will take an onion and. Like score it down to the butt and put about a tablespoon of butter and maybe some like smoked salt and then wrap it in tin foil and put it off to the side and just wait. And then when you're done with everything else, they'll be ready and they're really delicious. Yeah, you brought in that smoked salt that one time and like it, I think a little tiny little mm -hmm. crystal of it made they made a big uh, big flavor in the mouth, right? Mm -hmm. It's twenty five dollars for a tiny little jar. Where's that from? It's from Auntie Arwen's Spice Emporium or something like no, that. No, but like, where was it? Like, did, did you you didn't you didn't get it on your travels? You got it. At a, I got it at a at a big Renaissance event that has about ten or fifteen thousand people there. <laughs> All right. So what what's gonna excite you about two thousand nineteen here? Get to do some cool stuff. Get the you know, we got uh, 
a pretty uh, pretty cool program we're laying out here of creative problem solvers. What 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 excites you about 2019? Mm, I think having more opportunities to do more things, um, try new things. Uh, I've never worked at a commercial place that makes so many commercials as here. Um, the only commercial work I've done before is freelance. Every, every other place I've worked has been academic or for documentaries. So it's all still pretty new to me. Uh, the the paths you take to complete projects are, are, are pretty different, I think. Uh, yeah, so being in a small company relative to what I'm used to, Michigan State, which is giant, gigantic, yeah, uh, it's, I feel a lot more involved with the process, and that's fun. I learn a lot of stuff about how it works. Um, so I'm just looking forward to continuing to learn more about the whole process, and uh, I really like the steady stream of projects because every single video is another puzzle to put together right and i enjoy that so would you would you say that that's uh creatively fulfilling then like mm -hmm. that you get the, the the variety of things that you get to work on yeah i think the combination of meeting and learning from different people in different fields and then taking their need and spinning it into something that they can use to better themselves and their business uh is fun to do that and like I was saying each video is a, a puzzle to put together alright man well thank you very much for taking time today I appreciate it mm -hmm. talk to you soon man bye <laughs> <laughs>